Well, we come this morning to another section of Second Peter, this letter that we've been studying. And while we've spent the last several weeks going through some hard terrain, some difficult spots in the text, some, some really pointed words from the Apostle Peter that have been difficult to hear, now we finally come into a, a space with some encouragement. We can kind of take a, a breath of fresh air and, ah, thank you, Lord, for the hard parts, but also the encouraging parts. And so as we work our way into this new section of chapter 3, Peter is turning the corner now to provide some encouragement and, and call attention to hope. We all like, like hope. We like looking forward to things. To things. We, we like anticipating good news in great reunions. And here, the Apostle Peter wants to call attention to hope. Hope of something that is spectacular. Hope of something that will set the perspective and the focus for this church as they move through very difficult things. The hope of the coming of the Savior. Of course, it is that hope that those who are false teachers, those who are false prophets in the church want to steal away. They, they want to rob away the hope that this church has to try to lay waste to any productivity, to lay waste to any effective spirituality, to lay waste to any hope of, of a spiritual life in that, in that world and any hope of fruitfulness in their culture. They want to steal it away. They want to rob this church of hope. As we come to Maranatha Baptist Church, the word Maranatha calls attention to the coming of the Lord. And so every time you come here on a Sunday morning, every time you talk about Maranatha Baptist Church, encapsulated in that title of our church is this word Maranatha, which is calling attention to hope. Come, Lord Jesus. It's an Aramaic word that's only used one time in the New Testament, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 21 to 24, where Paul says this. He's closing out his letter. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord comes. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Kind of a strange way to close out a letter. Closing it out with a warning, but also with a commendation. Also with a, a call to hope, as it were. A benediction of hope. And you are in, every one of us in this room are in one of two camps. We are either those who do not love the Lord our God and thus will be accursed, or we're those who have an affection for him. And as we saw in the last several weeks, that affection, that desire for God will be a governing desire. And it will show up in how we'll see this passage today. It will show up in steady, continual, persistent hope. Hope in the coming of Christ. Hope that, that, that provides an anticipation and a longing for his soon approach. Paul warns those in this passage, those who don't love the Lord Jesus with this kind of life-changing love will be accursed. But for those who truly love the Lord, they will see 
the evidence of that love and affection for God in this kind of hope that is anticipating the coming of God. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Of course, this early church, and especially this church that Peter is writing to, was experiencing immense pressure. Pressure, pressure from the outside that we saw in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1 through 5. And now in this letter, this, chap, this, this letter of, uh, of Peter to this church, the, the pressures that are coming from within, they were bombarded by difficulties bombarded by pressures in suffering in persecution as we saw back in in uh, chapter 1 of 1st Peter 1 this this variegated trials that they experienced the the custom made trials that God brought to them that they experienced and it had a purpose the purpose was to call them to hope the purpose was to, to anchor their focus and attention on the coming of Christ that would help align their life, help orient and calibrate their focus. This, of course, is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where he says, For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Those who really have an ongoing and perpetual affection for Christ, it will show up in a anticipation and excitement and expectancy of the coming of Christ. Jesus wants to call attention to the coming kingdom by embedding this very thing, this very value in the Lord's prayer, the model prayer that he gives to his disciples when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Built into the model prayer is this call to anticipation, this call to hope, this call to remember why we exist. We exist for the kingdom of Christ, for the mission that he has set us on. And in this way, the coming of Christ will thus be then ushered in through a praying church, a praying church that is not distracted, but is expectant, is anticipating. You might even say, that God the Father is timing the event of his coming to correspond with an affection of the church, a growing affection of the church to pray for his coming to be a reality. But the truth is, as you evaluate your heart and as I evaluate my heart, how much time has elapsed before you've given any consideration to the coming of Christ? And how much time has elapsed before you have actually prayed, Jesus, will your kingdom come? Will your will be done? How easy is it for us to be distracted in life? How easy is it for us to be so oriented towards the here and now that we forget about what is coming, the anticipation of all that Christ purchased on the cross to gain for us an inheritance with him in heaven he has set us on a mission. He has called us to a life of worship and devotion with one priority, one focus, the kingdom of God. And how seldom we actually keep that as the preeminent focus of our attention. Peter is interested in calling this church to that kind of hope. And there are things that we're going to discover in our passage today that will steal away this hope, that will steal away this focus, this orientation towards the purpose of God 
in coming to earth in this way. And in our passage, Peter is is writing to this church that's in the middle of this fiery trial, this fiery suffering. And he wants to call attention to the hope that they have. As we saw in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 13, hope, fix your hope fully on the grace that is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what will help to settle our hearts when things are not going our way. That's what will settle our hearts when we are bombarded by the pressures of life, when we're experiencing suffering and persecution of every kind, the hope in God and hope in his coming and all that that means for us as believers. We're gonna walk through this text uh, verse by verse and and we're gonna see how we can maintain our hope, how we can maintain our focus, how we can prevent the false teachers or the world for that matter from stealing away our joy and our hope in God. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1, where Peter says, This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm stirring up your sincere mind. He's telling them, wake up. Wake up. Be alert. Be sober. Don't be under the influence of the philosophies of the world. Allow there to be attentiveness in your heart. See things clearly. Have the right focus. And remember the things that I have talked to you about in the past. I'm stirring you up. I'm trying to awaken your heart to know what God has called you to in the coming of Christ. This is the same word that Luke uses in his account of the disciples in Luke chapter 8, verse 24, when the disciples and Jesus are, are on their way to this boat, they're in this boat, and, and the, the day has been hard with lots of ministry, and Jesus is sleeping on the boat, and the wind and the waves come, and the disciples are, are terrified, and they, they went, and they woke up Jesus saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased and there was a calm. In a similar way, as we set our focus and attention and remember the coming of Christ and and the character of Christ, it will help to steady our hearts. It will help to awaken us to the reality that is truly present. Help us to understand that while we're experiencing a great deal of conflict in this life, that God is providentially in control that God has providentially willed that to happen so that we can grow in faith. He has a purpose for the challenges. And he wants to call our attention to hoping in him, trusting in him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter uses the same, the same word. He says, I think it is right as long as I am, as am in this body to stir you up. Same word. Awaken within you an understanding by way of reminder, again, the same word, same phraseology that he used earlier in this letter. We get the idea from Paul's letter from the church of Thessalonica that in the last days, it's gonna be punctuated by this kind of of darkness, this kind of of drunkenness, as he puts it. Notice in chapter five, verse six and eight. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. God has given us the spiritual equipment that we need to defend ourselves in hope, to remember the seriousness of his coming to see things clearly in this world, to not be taken away by the philosophies of this world, not to be sucked in, but to be sober, clear-headed in thinking. Wake up, he says. Recognize the urgency of the day. Don't be complacent or lethargic or sleepy or unaware. Don't forget why you exist in what your purpose is. Don't forget the mission that God has called you to, to serve. But there are dozens of reasons to lose our focus. Wouldn't you agree? There are current pains that we experience. There are hardships in life, whether they're physical or relational hardships that we experience. There are feelings of inadequacy and, and, and feelings of pain that we have. There are also current joys, celebrations, things that are good in life that catch us away. Responsibilities, starting school, making new friends, changing jobs, current activities, the homework, the sports, the music and drama and hobbies and family responsibilities that we have and current goals, all of which are good in life and are necessary for us to carry out our purpose in this world, but often distract us and catch us away, divert our attention from the things that really matter. For Peter and his audience, they were drawn away by present comfort. There was an affection in their heart, a desire, a passion for the things of this life in the here and now that caught them away from a focus on the things that were eternal. For them, God wasn't enough. Much like what we see in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, when Jesus is talking about the, the seed that grows up among the thorns. The same result, as Jesus explains, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of this world, however good or bad those cares might be, and an affection for riches and this world's comforts that catch us away, divert our attention. We have an opportunity, especially those of us who are on, on the older end of the spectrum. I just crossed the threshold of 50, so I'm, I'm on the other end uh, going down the hill, I suppose you might say. We have an opportunity, those of us in the older generation, to set the example for the younger generation of helping them to realize why we exist. And the closer we get to glory, the, the further along we grow in spiritual maturity and even physical maturity, and the, and the closer it is that we get to whatever that threshold might be where we step over into glory, the closer it is, we realize why we really exist and, and we realize the accountability that will come when we face Jesus Christ. For those of us who are on the older side of life, we have an opportunity to set the example 
for those who are younger. To point the way, to lead by example, not to check out, not to retire from ministry, not to shut down, not to buy into the world's philosophy by checking out, moving over, and taking a break, but by pressing in and maximizing every moment we have for the glory of God and for the benefit of the church and the community that God has placed us within. For the rest of you, when you evaluate your life and discover that Jesus is not primary, then take a warning. Take a warning from Peter. He wants to help us understand that we need to wake up. And the life of those who are living in the light and not living in darkness will be characterized by clear-headedness, by sober-mindedness, by the discipline of remembering the focus of why we exist, the mission that God has sent us on. We need to wake up. Verse 2 tells us not only to wake up, but to back up. We see that here when he refers to remembering the predictions. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. We need to back up. We need to call attention to the things that have been told to us from the very beginning. Those things uh, from the beginning of Scripture moving all the way to the end of Scripture. Call attention to that, those truths that God has given to us in his word. Peter refers to predictions. What kind of predictions is he speaking about? He's already touched on this in chapter 1, verse 4, when he says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, or very great predictions. These promises that are related to the coming of Christ that we see in chapter 3, verse 4, here in our context, where the false teachers will say, where is the the promise of his coming? Those very great and precious promises that you built your faith upon, where is the promise of that coming? Where is the trustworthiness of God? Can you put your hope into any of it? In chapter 3, verse 13, Peter draws attention and reinforces the significance of the promises of God when he says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The New Testament is punctuated by the promise of the future return of Christ. Christ is coming. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer explicitly to the Lord's return. In 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are over 300 instances in which Christ's apostles make reference to Jesus' second coming. This is an important reality in the mind of Christ. And of course, Jesus led the way. And the apostles spoke by the authority of Jesus. We see that here in chapter 3, verse 2. The commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The apostles were speaking, but they got the commandment. They got the authority. They got the direction from Christ himself. Jesus led the way. The night before Jesus was crucified, we see this, this clear example 
of Jesus trying to infuse hope into these disciples who are going to experience tremendous um, confusion and loss at Christ's death. In John 14, 1 to 3, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'm coming again. Don't worry. The, 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 the tribulation that you're going to experience tomorrow at my death will not erase the promise of my future coming. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, we find in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, there were 40 days that the disciples had to, to spend time with Jesus. And what was Jesus talking about? Well, he presented himself, Jesus presented himself to the disciples, to them, after his suffering, by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. For 40 days, Jesus was talking to them about the kingdom, whetting their appetite for what was coming. And so they're ready. Jesus, is it now? Is, is now the time? Everything is done. You've died. You've risen again. You've come and taken care of the sin problem and you've redeemed the world. Is this the time you're going to fulfill your promise to sit and to bring your kingdom to the earth? And Jesus says, it's coming, but not yet. It's coming. I promise. And so we don't know the time. But it's a time that's fixed by the Father and it's coming through his authority. Of course, there were parables that Jesus taught which confirmed the coming of the kingdom of God. The, the parables in, in Matthew chapter 13, there are seven of them where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom is coming. I'm gonna fulfill my promise. And as we were in Luke the Gospel of Luke, we, we understood that, the, that one of the, the key purposes of Christ in coming to earth was to preach about the kingdom. Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. I've been sent to tell you about my future coming. It's still in the works. All of this, of course, agrees with the prophetic testimony of the prophets from the Old Testament. 32 times there's a phrase used in the Old Testament to describe the day of the, 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 day of the Lord. This day of the Lord, this event that we're going to look at a little bit more next week and is referred to in verses 9 and 10 of our passage this morning. It's a time of judgment, a time of wrath, a time of delivering God's people and bringing peace to them. Same descriptions are used in the Old Testament and can correlate with the prophetic witness of Christ in the New Testament. We can draw a correlation. Jesus' kingdom is coming. The day of the Lord will come as promised. So we need to wake up, be alert, see things clearly, be sober, 
You need to back up and remember the promises that God has given to you through his apostles that came on the authority of Christ and built on the foundation of the, of the prophets of old. And we also need to wise up. We see that in verses three to seven. Three to seven, it says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. You can wise up by identifying the character qualities of the people who are telling you these things. We'll see some things about them and be able to identify them as those who are credible or not credible. Peter describes them as scoffers, those who mock, those who revile. Only two times this word is used in the New Testament. And, and we see through this context and through this verse that, that these individuals uh, question God's character. That is one of the, the features of, of what you can expect of those who, who will try to, to rob away your hope if you wise up and you see and recognize them for who they are, you'll recognize that they are those who question God's character. Jude 17 and 18 uses similar language when, when Jude writes this, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the, of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Be aware Watch out. There are scoffers. There are those who would seek to undermine the things of the word, seek to undermine the character of God. Be alert. Be aware. Know who they are. Identify them by their mocking, by their scoffing. Their argument, as we see in verse 4, their, their scoffing will, will, will sound a little like this. It says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. God made promises. He hasn't kept, they might say. God is not dependable. He's not trustworthy. Or at a minimum, his promises that he made aren't clear. You can't understand them. Speaking about God's judgment on sin, Jude also says this. He says in verses 14 and 15, it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness and that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Lord is going to come against them the seventh from, a, from Adam, who would have been still alive when Adam and Eve were walking the planet. He made a prediction about the holiness of God, stating that those who live in an ungodly way will see and experience the, the, the hand of judgment from God. And yet, these scoffers will throw that in God's face. <laughs> he made this promise thousands of years ago that came from the seventh from Adam and he still hasn't made good on the promise? He's either not faithful or what he says is not clear. It's not gonna happen. There's no accountability. There's no judgment. There's nothing to worry about. You can enjoy your passions. 
You can enjoy your comforts. God paid for your sins, they might say. You can live it up. God loves you. He wants you to enjoy life, they might say. He never intended for life to be a drag. He never meant for you to be imprisoned to the law. He wants you to be free. So they preach freedom, and as we saw in chapter 2, they are slaves of corruption. They talk about freedom, but they're slaves of corruption. They misrepresent, they question the character of God and tell you, you can indulge in every kind of earthly delight you want, just ask God for forgiveness. He doesn't want you to be imprisoned and under slavery to the law. But as we know, those who are truly gods understand that the character of God and the power of God, the divine nature of God, has been infused and given to those who are believers. And it leads them to a whole new new way of life that we saw in chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. The presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit that helps them to enjoy the divine nature, to escape the corruption that is in this world, along with its lusts. Don't be fooled, Peter says. Be wise. They not only question God's character, they misrepresent God's word. That's what we see in verses 5 to 7. They misrepresent God's word. It says, For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Notice, they didn't forget. They weren't unaware of the truths that existed in the Word. Rather, they intentionally overlooked them. It uses the word, Peter uses the word to escape notice, to forget. They intentionally overlooked, they intentionally neglected the truth that was there, that was present. They purposed in their heart, this word deliberately is to purpose, to decide, to wish, to will. They determined that they were going to be deceptive. They were, de- they were determined to manipulate the facts to their own purposes. They didn't forget. They intentionally overlooked it. They overlooked it for a purpose because they had an agenda They come to those who don't know better. Let me remind you of chapter 2, verse verse 20. They come to those who have barely escaped. Another translation of this word, because the Greek is difficult here. Those who have recently escaped. Those who are new to the faith or those who are weak in the faith, those who are not grounded in the truth, those who don't enjoy the sure foundation as we saw in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 10. Peter calls them to make their calling and election sure, stable, secure. How do they do that? Well, they can only do that as they anchor their hearts in the sure prophetic word that we saw in chapter 1, verse 18. The prophetic word which is more fully confirmed. And the more you know the truth of the word of God, the more your heart will be anchored and tethered to the strength and foundations that God has given. You won't be caught away 
You'll be able to be wise. You won't be manipulated. You won't be tossed to and fro like Peter or Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 4. You won't be like a wave tossed to and fro. You'll be anchored. You'll be steady because of the word of God which is grounding your heart. This word of God is, is pervading these next several verses. The word of God that, that formed the world out of chaos, the, the, the waters that he scooped together and gathered together so that the land would appear. He created order out of chaos, and now he is using that same water and that same word now to punish and to judge the world by turning order back into chaos, by allowing that water to spill across the boundaries. God's word prevails. God's word is preeminent in this, in this chapter. But they conveniently, these false teachers, conveniently dismiss the flood. Notice in chapter 3, verse 6, the world then existed, was deluged with water. This word deluge is the word cataclizo. Got the L in the wrong spot. It's the, it's the word cataclysmic that we're familiar with. An historic, physical, cataclysmic event was a judgment against sin. It was visible, just like creation was visible. It was verifiable. The word of God in creating the world, they could see, they could verify the power of the word and the testimony of judgment that was confirmed not only through the waters that covered the earth, and the fossils that we can see even in the mountaintops, but especially the rainbow that was put in the sky for us to remember that God will never judge the world this way again. An indication that the world would never experience that kind of judgment, but that judgment would soon be just as necessary. The world would be just as bad someday, and we would all wonder if God would judge the world in the same way. That's why the rainbow is there. The rainbow is there to say, just as God judged the world in a literal, physical way against ungodly individuals, he will judge again, but just this time through fire, as we see in 2 Peter 3, 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God will bring judgment on those who rebel against him. And what happened in a literal, physical flood, God will replicate in a literal, physical pouring out of fire and wrath on the earth. Peter wants this church to hang on to joy, hang on to hope, those who are in the church want to dismantle and steal it away. But they're not going to be able to do that if this church remembers to wake up. If this church remembers to back up and remember, and remember the, the promises that have been given to them. And if they remember to wise up. See the true nature of these false teachers. This, of course, raises a host of questions that we'll get to a little bit more next week. But we'll want to conclude on, on this point in verses 8 to 10. This all leads us to hope of looking up. 
we can enjoy the benefits or the promises of God. We can anchor our hearts in what God has called us to remember in his, in his word as we look up and remember who God is. We see in verse 8 and 9, God is merciful. God is merciful. And as we look up to remember who God is, and as we remember that he is merciful, it will help us begin to understand why the delay. You promised so many years ago that you were coming. You, you promised so many years ago that, that vengeance was yours, that you would repay. And yet, here we go, and it seems as though the false teachers have a leg to stand on, and hey, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're suggesting that the world has continued just the way it's been. Notice in verse 8, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord one day as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is a God of mercy. He delays because he wants to invite sinners to enjoy mercy that comes through faith in him. Ezekiel, the prophet of the Old Testament, calls attention to this truth when he says in Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And any of you who know the context of this verse, you'll know that it happened while Israel was captive in Babylon, experiencing the consequences of their sin and rebellion of idolatry against God. And here they were in Babylon, captives away from their homeland, suffering because of the rebellion against God. And yet, even in this moment, God is calling them to himself. He's calling them to repentance because he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is merciful. And even in this moment, if there are those of you in this room who don't know Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, even in this moment, is convicting your heart of the things that you've done this week or the things that you've done in the previous month or year, things that you believe are too big for God to forgive, God is a God of mercy. God paid for your sin. And God desires for you to enjoy not only forgiveness that is in the moment, but forgiveness that will last for a lifetime because Jesus Christ paid for sin. And Jesus, Jesus Christ has made a way for all who believe. Whoever believes can enjoy the benefit of life with God, relationship with him. It only comes one way. It only comes through repentance of sin, acknowledging that Jesus is the only way to God, seeing him as the savior and deliverer of your sin, asking for forgiveness, and asking him to be the Lord of your life. God, be the master. Be the ruler. Be the one who calls the shots in my life. And Jesus will show his mercy to you, regardless of your history. 
God is merciful. And we'll pick up these two points more next week. But God is faithful and God is holy. And we see that here in this first phrase especially. The day of the Lord will come. God is faithful. He will do it. He's promised it. He will deliver. He will make good on his promises to you. And he'll do it in a way that you don't expect. He'll do it like a thief in the night. He'll do it unexpectedly when you're not prepared. It says, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the world, or the works that are, that are done on it will be exposed. Why? Because God is faithful. God will make good on his promise. It hasn't happened yet. It's been a long time since the promise came, but God is faithful to keep his word. So many, so many uh, verses that we could go to, but we need to, to finish and wrap this up. God is faithful and God is holy. Next week, we'll spend some time talking about this day of the Lord. The, the day of the Lord is not just a specific day, but it's, a, it's, an, it's an event that, that the Old Testament calls attention to and also the New Testament, this, this season of God unleashing his wrath in judgment on a wicked world. There will be accountability. There is a, a day of reckoning. There is a time at which the judge will come. The conqueror will come and he will accomplish victory over a wicked world, but also usher in and draw in those who are his into peace and enjoyment of a life with him. We'll spend some more time talking about that next week. The, the benefit of this concluding thought of recognizing that the judge is on his throne and the judge will have his way helps to settle our hearts in a couple of ways. First, it helps those of us who have been hurt and offended by others, those who have experienced some level of injustice, to, to recognize that, that, that those offenses against us, those injustices, injustices towards us are things at which God will bring his judgment on because vengeance is his. He will repay. There will be a day of reckoning and because of that, those who, are, who belong to him can entrust judgment to God and don't need to sit on the judgment seat ourselves. We are free. We can relinquish the responsibility. We don't have to, we don't have to control uh, the, our situation. We don't have to get even with those who hurt us or wrong us. We can do what we were commended to do in First Peter chapter 2 where the slaves are mistreated by their masters and it says, for to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps who committed no sin, neither was their deceit found in his mouth who when reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Those of us who belong to God can follow in the steps of Christ, entrust a righteous, faithful God to exact justice and judgment on those who have wronged us. 
we are free. And we also know we have this second hope. The hope is that in the middle of the hardest difficulties we experience, it pales in comparison with the glory that will be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ as we see in in Romans chapter eight. It's just a temporary suffering and we'll have eternal glory with him. Be free. Don't be bogged down or weighed down. Don't allow the false teachers or the false prophets to steal away your hope. Be watchful. Be those who are looking up. Be those who are waking up. Be those who are backing up and remembering the promises of God. And be those who are calling attention to the wonder of God in a life that has set its heart on joy and the coming of Christ. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Lord, we praise you this morning that you're coming. Thank you that we don't have to go through this life without an anticipation of something better. And thank you that there is a God who is overseeing it all, who by the word of your mouth created the world, who by the word of your mouth judged the world through a flood, and by the word of your mouth will set all things new and will hold accountable all those who rebel against you. May the posture of our heart, Lord, be to keep the coming of Christ at the forefront of our attention. May that help provide alignment and focus in our life from day to day, ordering our priorities, ordering our activities, and helping to orient our focus on the mission that you have called us to. Help us to be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you as you go.